what we need for human society is exactly what we have, a neutral something, neither you nor I, which we can both manipulate, tools which to perceive, so as to make signs to each other. Again, what are we talking about? I can talk to you because we can both set up sound waves in the common air between us. Matter, which keeps souls apart, also brings them together and enables each of us to have an outside as well as an inside. So that what are acts of will and thought for you are noises and glances for me. You are enabled not only to be, but to appear. And hence, I have the pleasure of making your acquaintance. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. And this week is part four. We are finishing our discussion on chapter, chapter one of the Divine Conspiracy. And I think that the final stop here is of utter importance. Uh, we tie back to a lot of things we've been talking about in the in these sections here. We tie back to Jordan Peterson again, uh, a discussion he had with Jonathan Peugeot about vision and um, morality and hierarchy. I read more from The Problem of Pain from C.S. Lewis and the Abolition of Man, and we tie this back to this cultural moment that we live in. And so I hope that this long argument has been fruitful for you. If you would like to hear more about the problem of pain, I think as I said in the last outro, there will be a video I post of me reading chapter 2, which is about divine omnipotence, and the problem of God's sovereignty, and the problem of pain, humanity. I think it is utterly important to understand this argument, to understand the necessity for a playable game, as I call it, it's Luce's argument, and for how we are to operate and conduct ourselves in the world and think about our own freedom and the freedom granted to us by God. So, without further ado, here is the final episode on chapter one of The Divine Conspiracy. It is about vision, hierarchy, and the necessity of a world in which we can all play together. Okay. So I don't know where I'm going <laughs> to We took a bathroom break. I don't know where I'm going to place this, what we're going to do here for the next 40 minutes. Um, specifically. Or I'll just cut all this out and put it there and you won't even know. Um, but I, I want to have a bit of a conversation about... Oh, give me... Sorry, give me one second. We haven't quoted Lewis enough. Well, this is a Lewis podcast, so shoot me. <laughs> you signed up for it. Um, yeah, I've got, let me see, three three Lewis books right there on the bookshelf. 
<laughs> right there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. What is it that I said earlier that I was like, we'll come back to this. It was on Peterson's thing about perception. I still haven't pulled up. If you could see my desk right now, it is a mess. Um, <laughs> I remember you saying it. I don't remember what it was. So that probably doesn't help. Dangerously, that's what it was. Okay. So okay. That'll be here in a minute once we get past uh, um, the first bit of Lewis's argument. Cool. So I guess cut right here. Sure. Something like that. Um, I'll figure it out. Yeah. If I have to watch 20 minutes of it, that's okay. Okay. So we were talking about. Sincere language, meaning, will to power. If there is no, if everything is the same, if all my instruments for orientation, which I think is a good phrase coming from this conversation, using Willard's analogy of flying upside down, facts, values, what I value is my personal beliefs, my, uh, what is, what was, what was Newbigin's um, sincerity with which I hold them. If that is the thing that says they are, factual and then lewis critiquing this why would guys and cities even write their book if they didn't think there were higher things of which to strive for ways and of thinking to impute onto their pupils look you didn't have an aim if you didn't have an aim you wouldn't write the book so you're implicitly saying that you have an aim something that you think is better better for what what does he say necessary or progressive or effective would be subterfuge they could be forced by argument to answer the question necessary for what? Progress towards what? We'll come back to that next week. Affecting what? In the last resort, they would have to admit that some state of affairs was, in their opinion, good for its own sake. And this time, they could not maintain that good simply described their own emotion about it, as it does for the waterfall. For the whole purpose of their book is so to condition the young reader that he will share their approval, and this would be either a fool's or a villain's undertaking, unless they held that their approval was in some way valid or correct. So they have to think that what they're doing is of more value than what is currently happening, otherwise they would, there would be no purpose in writing the book. But if, and this is a difficult leap, this is why I've struggled making it. If, so I'll go out on a limb, quite literally. Um, if you're going to play the game of language as arbitrary and you imbue your own meaning on the object that has no relevance to the transcendent, to or to the, uh, what is Lewis's phrase in, in We'll read it in a minute, but in um, Problem of Pain, uh, that has no submission to natural order, well, then there is no ethic. There is no meta-ethic. There is no structure from which you disseminate your information, meaning that everything is flat. And so what kind of a world do you live in where I, my projections of 
sublimity on the waterfall are just as valid as your projections of pretty. Coleridge has no meaning, no, of no, Coleridge is of no authority to say that one is more true than the other. Well, then you might think, well, yeah, maybe in statements of value, but what about truth? And as Newbigin points out, we're not, we are really selective in how we choose this, but maybe not anymore. And I can read you some more funny Newbigin quotes that have become very relevant to our society, where he thinks, oh, you wouldn't go down that road, but we, we have. Speaking of science and biology, um, Well, and I think, not to interrupt, but I think that this whole, the emphasis on equity in our society, meaning arbitrarily decided or arbitrarily and power-driven forced equality, right? Equity is the great equalization of all things to the point where it doesn't matter what those things can produce or are, they have to be on the same playing field, right? You talked about flattening everything out. So we just have a flat surface. That's, that's the result. That, that's, that has become the goal. And equality is not a bad goal. What's bad is using your will to power to force others into a system that doesn't correct for them, their existence, their strengths and weaknesses, because those are realities as well. Anyway. So my, my point is you start playing this game with big ideas of language and even small ideas of language about the, the mouse. I use the example of God just to prove that well, there's something, there's a common theme that everyone will say, will ascribe to the thing they call God, no matter their culture, which implies that it's not arbitrary. It's almost self-evidently the case. Uh, but if you're playing this game with language, if you're playing this game with morality, it's only a matter of time before you play this game with the world as Lewis points out about the waterfall, not just ascribe, and you might think, oh, that's trivial, ascribing a certain fe like feeling, you might say, which is Lewis's point, that's asinine, that you are merely describing how you feel, but you are saying something about the waterfall. To call that into question is to call the fixed nature or the the place in which we interact into question and this might sound like a giant leap or conspiracy theory but i don't think so so we're going to go to peterson and peugeot here for a minute excuse me and Peugeot is talking about the section in the talk is called Pyramids versus Mountains in the Bible. Because Peterson gives the analogy of the Egyptian pyramid and the pyramid 
the triangle at the top, the union of uh, Horus and Osiris, tradition and vision, being what being what Pharaoh is, right? The image of God. Um, and so, what does this mean? And Peugeot asks a haunting question, which is, we can make some cases like we've been trying to make about vision, morality, that there has to be something you're striving for. Otherwise, you can't look at the world. You can't talk about the world. There has to be something common that unites us, transcends over us, or we are subjugated to. Sure, you can make the bottom-up case, but Peugeot says, well, there's something at the top. So what comes down from the mountain? And I would ask, what mountain? You can see that space itself has that kind of hierarchy. And when you experience it yourself, you can do it. Go up a mountain. I always tell people, if you want to understand what holiness is, just go up a mountain. Because at the bottom of the mountain, you see idiosyncrasies. You see little things. You see details. You don't have a big picture. And as you go up the mountain, that picture starts to become clearer and clearer. And when you reach the summit of the mountain, you have, you, you have the experience of seeing all reality in one breath, like in one moment. And that is really this kind of hierarchy of, of perception, but it's also the hierarchy of the good. So we have the idea that ultimately that's the same thing for ethics, that there is something, there is a good up there. There's well, something that, which binds them all together. And that structure, it's, it's, it, this is a difficult leap, but that structure manifests itself with every act of perception you make. So for example, yeah. you know, I can look at the scene I'm in in a lot of different ways. I can look at most of you are in the dark, so I can't see you very clearly, but I can, I can you know, see a bunch of people, or I can see one person, or I can see the arm of one person, or I can look at the, the floor here, or, or I can focus on this. And you know, by focusing on this, I center it, I privilege it, right? I give it, I give it a sacred quality. And you might think, well, no, you don't. It's like, yes, you do, really. Because now you've determined that this is the most important thing that you can do at this moment, at, in this place, in relationship to the entire ethic that you inhabit. And you can't see this without doing that. And if you get so, it wrong, you pay for it. Yeah, well, you might spill it, for yeah. example. Or, yeah, or if you're or, driving and you don't end up focusing on the right thing, you, you will die. You yeah. could die. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not a theoretical problem. It's a real no, problem yeah. of the structure. No, of and it's a very strange thing to understand that you inhabit this sacred architecture with every perceptual act you undertake. And, and also, perception is an act, by the way. You know, you think, well, you just open your eyes and then you see the world. It's like, no, that isn't how it works. Your eyes are moving all the time. If they stop moving for more than a tenth of a second, you will go blind because the, the cells exhaust themselves. And so there's all sorts of little micro movements that your eyes are making, some of them involuntary and some of them voluntary, without which you can't see. And the act of visual perception is very much like the act of exploring something with your hands, which is why, you know, if you close your eyes and someone hands you a cup, you won't be able to tell if it's transparent or not, but you can feel it out, and you can develop a pretty good visual picture of the, of the, of the object, so you can see with your hands, and that's partly why kids want to grab everything, because it's hard to see with just your eyes, and if you can add your hands to that, it makes it easier to see. And so, and that's active exploration, and you're feeling out the world with your eyes. It's, you're never a passive recipient of a priori sense data. So the empiricists are just wrong. 
And then the rationalists have been arguing with them for centuries because the rationalists always presumed that you, you didn't just get raw sense data, you had to impose a a priori interpretive schema on the world. And that's the difference between rationalism and empiricism. And the rationalists are right, although they thought that was just rational, and that's where they were wrong. So it's, it's, it's not rational in, in the same sense that a reductive materialist atheist would use that term. And so it's very strange that the structure of, of sacred architecture, say, duplicates the structure of cognitive category and also the structure of perceptual category. So we inhabit a temple corrupt though it may be, with every interaction with the world that we undertake. And that's really quite a frightening thing to realize. Uh, very, it's a very frightening thing to realize when you really realize it. It's like, oh, uh-oh, this is real. And it's even worse than that. It's like the, it's the precondition for the idea of reality itself, which is, that's really real, right? I mean, you've got real, that's nothing. It's the precondition for reality itself. That's super real. And you know, to some degree, the, the Christian idea of the Logos, and the Greek idea as well, is the expression of the recognition of the precondition for the real itself. And that's really something to understand as well. Yeah. Um, you know, scientists, I talked to Richard Dawkins when I was at Oxford, you know, and one of the things that characterizes Dawkins is that Dawkins believes that the truth will set you free. That is not a scientific presupposition. That is a religious presupposition. But it also might be the religious presupposition without which science is not possible. Because all the scientists I know who are real scientists, un they abide by the truth to an unbelievable degree. You know, if you're a social scientist and you have a data set in front of you, you know, say 200 columns of 500... something that we could defend like that if you do not aim properly right so the wage of the the, the pro okay, he goes on talk about not aiming properly incorrect vision at sin which is interesting um any comments on that now how about you don't do that again it's really embarrassing it's terrible for between those two viewpoints constantly constantly because and, and, and in your relationship with yourself, well, it's like, how much do you forgive yourself? And the answer certainly is zero. It's not zero. That's no one can live without being able to forgive themselves to some degree. But by the same token, you know, you don't want to let yourself off the hook for every idiot error you make. And because that just doesn't work because there are real errors. And yeah, there are cons real consequences. Yes, too. for you and other people. Right. And yeah, and, and, there's, and there's the real, which, you know, we're all wondering about now. This is one of the things that I think is quite comical, and I talked to Dawkins about this, is, you know, um, the, the rationalists, the scientists, the atheists, and the postmodernists as well, really took the idea of the divine to pieces. And even in the dismissive way that you see with someone, say, like Harris, although, like I said, he has his meditation and his, he dwells in the realm of the sacred, he just leaves it ineffable, right? And doesn't ritualize it, doesn't turn it into any kind of intellectual creed, and I think he, d he does that because if he turned it into an intellectual creed, his rationality would just tear it to pieces. Mm. And so then he would have nothing, you know. Um, and in any case, um, we've dispensed with the idea of the sacred transcendent, let's say, and that's the hard-headed way of thinking about the world, but what, the, what the, uh, the reductive atheists didn't quite figure out was the Dostoevskian problem. It's like, well, if there's no God, everything is permitted. Well, how about 
we don't believe in objects anymore. Well, that won't happen. It's like, yeah, really, that won't happen, eh? What makes you think that, like, do the Buddhists believe in objects? Not really. You know, the world's maya. It's illusion. There's no transcendent material world. That's a Western idea. And I really think it came out of, well, partly Greece, but certainly came out of ideas that are associated with the logos on the logic side and on the, and on the religious side. It's like there's a transcendent world. It's material, but it's a transcendent world. You can't just do any old thing. You will be the objective world will object to what you're doing. And so then it's an inexhaustible source of corrective wisdom. And it's the, it's the realization of that in some sense that's the precondition for science. You have to believe that before you can be a scientist. There's a reality out there that transcends your knowledge. And the postmodern types, I mean, technically, they just rejected that completely. They collapsed ontology, which is this, the study of being, let's say, into epistemology. They said, no, it's all, it's all words. It's like... Oh, I see. So we stopped believing in God. Now we stop believing in the object. And if you're wondering why the DEI types are taking on the STEM people, if you haven't noticed that, and are going to win, by the way, it's because they don't believe in the objective world. What the hell do you need scientists for? You know, that's, there's no objective reality. It's just whim. People can't believe that. It's like, that's what people have believed for most of time. And what, what do you mean they can't believe that? You mean till the bridges start falling down? They'll just blame that on insufficient diversity. Yeah, it'd be funny if it wasn't true. <laughs> I mean, I think... So the objective world, ontology collapsed into linguistics. You have, and I think this, what he, what he says about Dawkins and science, the belief in the truth, that the world has something to reveal to me is a religious presupposition. It is a consequence of the second culture. It is a consequence of the belief that there is an order to creation. In Lewis's second chapter on the problem of pain, He says this, and again, just stop me when you have a comment. Mm -hmm. If God were good, this is chapter, it's the, the chapters, chapter two on divine omnipotence. He has a quote from Aquinas. Nothing which implies contradiction, contradiction falls under the omnipotence of God. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. The possibility of answering it depends on showing that the terms good and almighty, and perhaps also the term happy, are equivocal. For it must be admitted from the outset that if the popular meanings attached to these words are the best or the only possible meanings, then the argument is unanswerable. In this chapter, I shall make some comments on the idea of omnipotence and, in the following, some on the ideas of goodness. He talks about omnipotence, the power to do whatever you will. He says that
it is impossible. Well, in ordinary usage, the word impossible generally implies a suppressed clause between with the word, beginning with the word, unless. Thus, it is impossible for me to see the street from where I sit writing at the moment. That is, it is impossible to see the street unless I go to the top floor where I shall be high enough to overlook the intervening building. If I had broken my leg, I should say, but it is impossible to go up to the top floor, meaning, however, that it is impossible unless some friends turn up who will carry me. Now let us advance to a different plane of impossibility by saying it is at any rate impossible to see the street as long as I remain where I am and the intervening building remaining where it is. Some might add, unless the nature of space or of vision were different from what it is. I do not know what the best philosophers or scientists would say to this, but I should have to reply I don't know whether space or vision could possibly have been of such a nature as you suggest. I cannot say whether seeing around corners is, in the new sense, possible or not, because I do not know whether it is self-contradictory or not. But I know very well that if it is self-contradictory, it is absolutely impossible. We'll come back to that. The absolutely impossible also may be called the intrinsically impossible because it carries its impossibilities within itself instead of borrowing it from the other impossibilities, which in turn depend upon others moving to see the street or vision itself changing to see the street. He said, he says, Talking about God and his omnipotence means power to do all things. Power to do all things that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is no limit to his power. If you choose to say God can give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them the two words, God can. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsically impossible are not things, but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of the two mutually exclusive alternatives not because his power meets an obstacle, right? What's the question? If God were to create something which he could not move, could he move it? Intrinsically impossible. Not because his powers meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense, even when we are talking about God. It should, be how, it should, however, be remembered that human reasoners often make mistakes, either by arguing from false data or by inad, inad, inadvertences in the argument itself. We may thus come to think things possible which are really impossible and vice versa. 
we ought therefore to use great caution in defining those intrinsic impossibilities, even which omnipotence cannot perform. What follows is to be regarded less as an assertion of what they are than a sample of what they might be. The inextricable laws of nature, which operate in defiance of human suffering or desert, which are not turned aside by prayer, seem at first sight to furnish a strong argument against the goodness and power of God. I'm going to submit that not even omnipotence could create a sufficient a society of free souls without at the same time creating a relatively independent and inextricable nature. There is, here we go with how the world operates. There is no reason to suppose that self-consciousness, the recognition of a creature by itself as a self, can exist except in contrast with an other, a something which is not the self. What happens if all your others are projections of yourself? It is against an environment, and preferably a social environment, an environment of other selves, that the awareness of myself stands out. This would raise a difficulty about the consciousness of God if we were merely theist, being Christians, we learn from the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity that something analogous to society exists within the divine being from all eternity. That God is love, not merely in the sense of being the platonic form of love, but because within him, the concrete reciprocities of love exist before all worlds and are thence derived to the creatures. Again, the freedom of a creature must must mean freedom to choose, and choice implies the existence of things to choose between. A creature with no environment would have no choices to make, so that freedom, like self-consciousness, if they are not indeed the same thing, again demand the presence to the self of something other than the self. The minimum conditions of self-consciousness and freedom, then, would be that the creature should apprehend God and therefore itself as distinct from God. I'll read this and then I'll stop. People often talk as if nothing were easier than for two naked minds to meet or become aware of each other. But I see no possibility of their doing so except in a common medium, which forms their external world or environment. Even our vague attempt to imagine such a meeting between disembodied spirits usually slips in the superstitious, superstitiously the idea of at least a common space and a common time to give the co and coexistence a meaning. And space and time are already an environment. But more than this is required. If your thoughts and passions were directly present to me, like my own, without any mark of externality or otherness. How should I distinguish them from mine? And what thoughts or passions could we begin to have without objects to think and feel about or perceive? How should we perceive them? Nay, could I even begin to have the conception of external or other unless I had experiences of an external world? You may reply as a Christian that God and Satan do in fact affect my consciousness in this 
in this direct way without signals of externality? Yes. And the result is that most people remain ignorant of the existence of both. We may therefore suppose that if human souls affected one another directly and immaterially, it would be a rare triumph of faith and insight for any one of them to believe in the existence of the others. It would be hard for me to know my neighbor under such conditions than it is for me to know God. For in recognizing the impact of God upon me, I am now helped by things to reach me through the external world, such as the tradition of the church, Holy Scripture, and the conversation of religious friends. What we need for human society is exactly what we have, a neutral something, neither you nor I, which we can both manipulate, tools which to perceive, so as to make signs to each other. Again, what are we talking about? I can talk to you because we can both set up sound waves in the common air between us. Matter, which keeps souls apart, also brings them together and enables each of us to have an outside as well as an inside. So that what are acts of will and thought for you are noises and glances for me. You are enabled not only to be, but to appear. And hence, I have the pleasure of making your acquaintance. Yeah, it's so profound. <clears throat> because what he really does a good job of is showing the necessity of the way things are. It's almost as though it is as though there's no other way it could be, right? You can't exist with others if there's not a neutral space that you occupy. <clears throat> and you can't exist with others in a meaningful way and learn and grow if reality does not object to certain ways of you operating in it. I think I said this as we were doing pre-show, maybe the other day, even. Isn't that what the entire Darwinian theory is based upon, right? Is this idea that certain genetic mutations help you, give you an advantage relative to other objects in the world. And therefore you live on and other things that don't have that advantage in relationship to the objects in the world don't. So again, I'm having trouble seeing how all of these philosophies can nicely coalesce because it seems as though they object to each other, but I guess that's the nature of postmodernism. So I have, I know we're running out of time. I, I have one more little section. <clears throat> and going back 
this gets into some interesting questions of freedom and the nature of the world. Again, if matter has a fixed nature and obeys constant laws, which you have to believe that to be a scientist, by the way, as Peterson points out, not all states of matter will be equally agreeable to the wishes of a given soul. Oh, hang on. I'll back up one part. This is the danger of my, the objects in the world are just only have meaning in my projections on them. But if matter is to serve as a neutral field, it must have a fixed nature of its own. And how do we describe that nature? If a world or material system had only a single inhabitant, it might, it might conform at every moment to his wishes. Trees for his sake would crowd into a shade. But if you were introduced into a world, which thus varied at my every whim, you would be quite unable to act in it and would thus lose the exercise of your free will. Nor is it clear that you could make your presence known to me all the matter by which you attempt to make signs to me, being already in my control and therefore not capable of being manipulated by you, will to power, quite literally. Again, if matter has a fixed nature and obeys constant laws, not all states of matter will be equally agreeable to the wishes of a given soul, nor all equally beneficial for the particular agitations of matter, which he calls his body. If fire comforts that body at a certain distance, it will destroy it when the distance is reduced. Hence, even in a perfect world, the necessities of those danger signals, which the pain fibers in our nerves are apparently designed to transmit. Does this mean an inevitable element of evil in the form of pain or any possible world? I think not. For while it may be true that the least sin is an incalculable evil, the evil of pain depends on degree and pains below a certain intensity are not feared or resented at all. No one minds the process, warm, beautifully hot, too hot, it stings, which warms him to withdraw his hand, which warns him to withdraw his hand from exposure to the fire. And if I may trust my own feeling, the slight ache in the legs as we climb into bed after a good day's walking is in fact pleasurable. Yet again, if the fixed nature of matter prevents it from being always and in all its dispositions equally agreeable equity to every single soul, much less is it possible for the matter of the universe at any moment to be distributed so that it is equally convenient and pleasurable to each member of a society. If a man traveling in one direction is having a journey down a hill, a man going in the opposite direction must be going up a hill. If even a pebble lies where I want it to lie, it cannot, except by coincidence, be where you want it to lie. And this is very far from being an evil. On the contrary, it furnishes occasions for all those acts of courtesy, respect, and unselfishness by which love and good humor and modesty express themselves. But it certainly leaves the way open for a great evil, that of competition and hostility. And if souls are free, they cannot be prevented from dealing with the problem by competition instead of courtesy. And once they have advanced to actual hostility, they can exploit the fixed nature of matter to hurt one another. The permanent nature of wood 
which enables us to use it as a beam, also enables us to use it for hitting our neighbor on the head. The permanent nature of matter in general means that when human beings fight, the victory ordinarily goes to those who have superior weapons, skills, and members, or in numbers, even if their cause is unjust. And I'll finish with this. We can perhaps conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of this abuse of free will by his creatures at every moment, so that a would-be beam became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon. And the air refused to obey me if I attempt to set up the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would therefore be one in which wrong actions were impossible, and in which therefore freedom of the will would be void. Nay, if the principles were carried to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible. For the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. All matter in the neighborhood of a wicked man would be liable to undergo unpredictable alterations that God can and does on occasion modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call miracles as part of the Christian faith. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that the occasions should be extremely rare. And again, in a game of chess, you can make certain arbitrary concessions to your opponent, which stand to the ordinary rules of the game as miracles stand to the laws of nature. You can deprive yourself of a castle or allow the other man sometimes to take back a move he made inadvertently. But if you concede everything that at any moment happens to suit him, if all his moves were revocable and if all your pieces disappeared, whenever their positions on the board were not to his liking, then you could not have a game at all. So it is with the life of souls in a world. Fixed laws, consequences unfolding by causal necessity, the whole natural order are at once limits within which their common life is confined. And also the soul conditions under which any life is possible. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free will is involved, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. And if our good news is not news, just advice, if it's not something that has happened because of which the world is different. If it is just a value and not a truth that informs our values, well, then we have nothing really to proclaim. And we can't keep buying the lie that all these ways of knowing, all these ways of being, all these instruments of orientation are equally the same. They must have, or they're, mm, the important point is not the precise nature of their end, but the fact that they have an end at all, they must have, or their book 
being purely practical in intention is written to no purpose. And this end must have real value in their eyes. To abstain from calling it good and to use instead such predicates as necessary or progressive or efficient would be subterfuge. They could be forced by argument to answer the questions necessary for what, progress towards what, affecting what, the last resort. In the last resort, they would have to admit that some state of affairs was in their uh, opinion good for its own sake, maybe a condition in which the world is necessary. And this time they could not maintain that good simply described their own emotion about it or their own value of it. For the whole purpose of their book is so to condition the young reader that he will share their approval. And this would be either a fool's or a villain's undertaking unless they held that their approval was in some way valid or correct. There's, there's good and bad ways to do this. But the point is, if we're continually going to divorce what we say from the reality of the world or the lives in which we live, things of which we're going to have to account for, we are saying nothing of real importance. We have no good news. Yeah, at that point, all we have is weak advice, not even strong or good advice. And <clears throat> this, the I sorry, no. but I, I just I I want us to keep asking this question as we think about the gospel, the good news. Do we actually think it is true that it is something about which has happened according to the scriptures? Because of which the world is different. Do you believe that? Do you believe that after the resurrection, the world is different? Do you think the kingdom's coming? Do you want to bring it? And I mean actually bring it. I don't mean just get someone to pray a prayer so they go to heaven. Or just build utopia. Do we actually think it's good news or are we content with just giving people advice or we're just trading values? We'll talk about ways to do this well and bad, but I want to keep begging the question. Do we actually think that the, that what we read about Jesus, what we what we think of when we hear him say the kingdom of God is like that that is reality that is the earth we walk on or is it just something we mentally ascend to
Because if it's just that, then we are to be pitied. That's what Paul says, right? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are above all to be most pitied. He's taking it as a as something of which we're going to have to contend with. That's his whole point in the rest of First Corinthians 15. Yep. And we'll get to this maybe not next time, maybe next time. Um, once we get to chapter three of Willard, but do we take Jesus' words seriously? That's an important thing to question. Listen to this. Is this the reality of which we'll have to contend, or is this good advice? Can I just pray or meditate and do yoga? Are they going to lead to the same thing? First Corinthians 15, 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, if that is real, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And remember, for I received what I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, so that he appeared to Cephas, and he gives the, the facts the case if there's no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised if that hasn't happened if that is not a reality our preaching is useless and so is your faith more than that we are then found to be false witnesses about god if we have testified about god that he raised christ from the dead But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Your old reality is what governs you. The kingdom is not at hand. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of most people to be pitied. It doesn't sound like advice or values. It informs a lot of value, and it can give you some good advice about how to live in light of another reality of a different kind of life. 
but that sounds like a hell of a lot of news. All right, I'm done. Call it. As always, thank you guys so much for listening to the Belfast Podcast. This was the wrap-up on Chapter 1 of The Divine Conspiracy. Trust me, our, we learned we learned the next few chapters are not going to be quite as long, although Chapter 2 we do take after Chapter 3. After Chapter 3. <laughs> uh, chapters 2 and 3, especially 3 for some reason, we found very important. But I hope that this, as I said before, I hope this whole argument has been helpful for you. hope it gives you some vision for what we see going on in our world today. I hope it gives you some lenses through which to see, and then you can judge if our argument here lays well on the world that is in front of you. And so next week, we will move on to Chapter 2 of the Divine Conspiracy, Gospels of Sin Management. But this groundwork of the world we live in, of the cultures that battle each other, of the pluralist society we live in that causes great blurriness in our vision is essential to understand if we're going to understand the ways in which the gospel has been co-opted to just be about managing our sins. So I hope you look forward to that. We'll see you next week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email me at thebelfastpodcast.gmail.com. You can follow us at the Belfast Podcast on Instagram. You can DM Daniel there. If you feel so inclined, if you are edified, if you are challenged, if you enjoy any of the content we put out here, I would very much appreciate if you would be willing to give to my GoFundMe for my trip to England. That will be in the description below. If you give over $5, just a small amount, $5, one Starbucks coffee, not even that, then you will get access to special content I will make by the end of the trip as a consequence of the trip. And so, again, if you feel so inclined, if you are financially able, appreciate any gift so join us next week as we talk about gospels of sin management as always thank you for listening